This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. The scripture lesson that was read came from Paul's letter to the Colossian church, the fourth chapter, and the reading was the second through the sixth verses. I'll read it again as follows. Devote yourselves in prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. One of the biggest problems I think that people face in life, especially in relationships, is making faulty assumptions. It is very easy to be confronted with a problem or a situation and make the assumption that we already know what is needed or what is required. Assumptions, I believe, is one of the main reasons why we miss out on lucrative opportunities and misinterpret situations, leaving us very often with bad impressions. And for many of us, once we have experienced something and it left a bad impression on us, we have a very hard time giving it a second chance because that bad experience has been etched in our core memory. But the same is also true for, get this, a good first-time impression. We can experience something so good that every time we go back, we expect to have that same good experience again. Well, well the truth is, whether your first-time experience was bad or good, there is no guarantee that what you experience, you will experience again. And sometimes all we have is one chance to make a good impression. So we are encouraged by the Apostle Paul to make the most of every opportunity. But the thing that always gets in the way of our opportunities are our assumptions. So it is with this thought in mind that I want to talk a little bit about our assumptions and how that impacts our opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ confidently in a time when religious seems to be falling apart with all of the assumptions that people make. I want to talk about some common assumptions about religion and then discuss our responsibility in the midst of all of these problems. And to do this, I'll preach a message I've titled, quite simply, A Salty Religion. In other words, religion seasoned just right. Let us pray. 
Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you now for the preaching hour. We have emphatically declared that you are the center of our joy. Now, Lord, as our center, speak to us now through this, your manservant, a word for such a time as this, and we will be blessed in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. 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 One of the things that has been heavy on my heart is how the church is portrayed throughout the mass media and including, of course, social media. There seems to be a lot of talk or opinions on things like who might be a better candidate for evangelicals, political candidate that is, or maybe discussions around creationism or the Big Bang, or even speculation about when Jesus is coming back. All things that are incidental and non-essential to the faith, yet quite damaging to our witness. It seems in many ways that there are far too much talk about what God should do or what he shouldn't do or who God should bless or who God should not bless and why. But very little talk about the life-giving message that a life lived faithful to the teachings of Jesus Christ and the importance of that message in every one of our lives seemed to fall by the wayside. Somehow, we as the church talk a lot about everything else but about what Jesus says and what Jesus intends for all of us. We need to talk about Jesus. We say it all the time, especially during this Advent season. He is the reason for the season, yet drive down any street and you can tell that the presence are the reasons. For this season. Mm. Jesus is not just the reason for the season. Hear me church. Jesus is the season. Amen. And we must be clear. On any given day you could turn on Christian radio or watch Christian TV or scroll through Instagram or TikTok and there will be no shortage of people talking about the church, talking about religion, talking about faith, showing the gyrations of Kirk Franklin and generally mocking people who may be having an active and authentic worship experience in the church. Now to be quite frank, some of them are really funny. But the point is, the media, in mocking religion and worship, they are promoting a faith that appears to be ridiculous, asinine, and downright foolish, and they are effectively leaving a bad impression on those that this may be their first experience with anything religious. Well. And as a result... What they have seen has now been etched in their minds and in their core memory that worship is nothing more than something worthy of mockery and to be ridiculed. But lest we be discouraged people of God, I want to remind you that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for us that is being saved, it is the power 
of God. So while people may mock and ridicule our faith, leaving many with a bad impression as they make faulty assumptions about what the church is or is about, I'm concerned about those who are not perishing but still need to hear the good news. I hope you're hearing me this morning, church. It is to those people that I'm speaking, whether here in the sanctuary or even online, that I want to introduce to the concept of salt. The interesting thing about salt, and I don't know much about cooking, except how food tastes, is that when it is placed in just the right amount, the food is delicious. Put too little salt and the food is bland. Or pour out a whole bottle of salt and the food becomes inedible. So there is a right amount of salt that can be applied to food to make it delicious and desirable to the point that, watch this, you would want to eat it again. The same holds for how we communicate our faith to those who may have tasted it before and had a bad experience. Or for those who were never exposed but have made some faulty assumptions about the faith. There's a reason why. The scriptures tell us, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, the religion, the faith, what we talk about and what we promote must be seasoned with just the right amount of salt that we leave a good taste in the mouths of those so that they may return for more. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Truth be told, it is often embarrassing to see what is coming from the church in how we often communicate our faith, both from the media, but also from ourselves. And I'm reminded of a statement from Mahatma Gandhi in his response to a question that he was asked about his thoughts on Christianity. Here's what Gandhi actually said. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. What an indictment. In fact, some of the reasons people give for not even wanting to be a part of the church are that they say the church is full of hypocrites. I don't think they're lying. They say the church hates women, gays, divorced people, ethnic groups, interracial couples, you name it. The church hates people. They say the church people are too judgmental. They say there's false teachers in the church. A lot of people don't come to church because they were hurt by the church. Or, my favorite, they just want your money. Now, all of these things that I've just stated, most people will argue they're right. They're right in many ways because we as a church often talk so much about what we are against as opposed to what we are for. I shared this because the truth is so many of us have even sometimes felt this way if we are honest about the church. We come into the house of the Lord with our own issues, our own challenges, our own struggles, and our own problems, expecting the people that we have been worshiping with for the past several years would at least 
understand or be willing to hear us, but all they get is judgment from the same people sitting with you in the pews or maybe even in the pulpit. I'm talking about the church. But what people need to understand is that the church is a place that, yes, it is full of hypocrites. Yes, it is full of people that are judgmental. Yes, it is full of people that only look out for themselves. Yes, it is full of people that are selfish. Yes, the church is full of people that are sinners. In the very same way that a hospital is full of a lot of sick people. So in the church is where you're going to find what is happening in the real lives of people outside the world. Because when they argue about the church, saying all these things about the church, what you don't hear is that what you find in the church is also what you find outside the church. People outside the church are judgmental. People outside of the church are selfish. Just drive long enough on the highway and get cut off. Or people not letting you in the lane because they want to win the race. My point is simply this. We are a people, whether in or outside the church, that are hurting. And we're hurting for reasons that go well beyond whether or not you have committed to some kind of faith community. The only difference with the world is that the world will look at you and say, that's you. But the church will say, I will do the best with my wounded self. To try to be there for you. I know somebody. A healer. Who despite where you've been. And what you have done. Has the power through a group of sinful. Broken people. Who will still be willing to pray for you. He has a way to use that. For your healing. And for your salvation. That is the church. Broken and so as bad as we sometimes think religion is, what we need to understand is that without the consistency that comes with our practices in this church, we would never be able to differentiate ourselves from the things of the world that we so easily gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see, I want to talk a little bit about the rituals in the church because mm. we're talking about religion. Most of us work a nine-to-five job, and it is a routine for us, and it's a means of allowing us to be able to make ends meet. But very often, the practice we have is we wake up in the morning, we'll turn on maybe the news to see what's going on, check the weather or whatever, or we, when we get home, we turn on the TV to our favorite television program that we know comes on at a certain time, whether it's Monday Night Football or SVU. (laughs) We listen to our favorite talk radio and we know what time everything comes on or our favorite programming. What's my point? My point is, is that all of these things that we have become accustomed to doing, they form certain rituals in our lives just in the same way that the rituals in the church form and help us to deal with the things of our lives. Mm. We can't escape the rituals of life. We are programmed for these rituals. Now, if our favorite program, for whatever reason, is not on the air, we know it right away. If there are too many commercials, we recognize that right away. If they add new actors or replace our favorites, we know it. 
This is the kind of sensitivity that we develop with the consistency of rituals. And guess what? The church functions the very same way. So any kind of activity turned into a ritual and coupled with meaning or something meaningful, listen, it allows you to know when things have gone out of order. So we can complain about the church and say, oh, why are they doing this over and over and over and over again? Why do they say the summary decalogue? Why do they sing the doxology? Why do they do all of these things over and over and over again? Because what, my brothers and sisters, you need to know is that those practices in our religious faith gives us balance. It allows us to be able to know where we are even in the worship. It allows us to know when we can expect. We are in the season of Advent. What do we know? Jesus is coming. We anticipate it. You can't anticipate something that you have not already had some kind of ritual experience for. We know what to expect. That is the point of the ritual. It helps us to stay grounded, and it helps us to stay focused. And so when things are, listen, if you were to walk into this church, and we just said anything goes, anybody just do whatever they want to do. Eve, you play whenever you feel like it, whether the pastor's talking or not. Whether, you know, somebody jumps up and just start praying. Do What you would find is chaos. The rituals allow us to have some sense of focus. So when people are talking about the church and religion, we have to be clear about what it is that they're actually talking about. There's a reason why in the book of Leviticus, God set up the ritualistic order for how worship was to be done. He did it because he knew that it would be easy for the people to lose track of the rituals that they see in the world and then the rituals they see in the church. If you didn't have the religious rituals in the house of God, we would look like any other country club. You won't know you're in a church. And listen, the way they're building churches today, you can't tell if they are conference centers or if they are houses of worship. I'm just making a point. My point is simply this. The problems that people are having with religion are not really with religion per se, but the way that they understand religion and the way that it is being portrayed in the media and in their own mindset. In other words, they struggle with the assumptions that they have made about religion. Now, please keep in mind, all this point, I'm not talking about the church. The church is different from religion. Religion is an organized structure that people use in order to govern behavior. The church are the people, the called out ones, those who by whatever means God sees fit, pulls them into his kingdom. The religion attempts to transition people from the ritual of the world to the ritual of the spiritual. That's what the church does. Now, because everyone has their own assumptions, it's important for me to talk a little bit about something called a worldview. And church, I want you to understand, because our people perish from a lack of understanding. And I want you to know why you know what you know, and why you believe what you believe, and why we do what we do. There is something called a worldview. A worldview is a set of suppositions 
that we hold about the basic makeup of our world. In other words, it's how you and I see and understand the world. That's our worldview. This is why the Apostle Paul in the second Corinthians, book of 2 Corinthians, the third chapter and the 14th through the 16th verses says this. Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul says. He said this. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses or the Old Testament is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What am I saying, church? I'm telling you that the veil that Paul is talking about is the worldview. It is the lens through which you see opportunities or you see situations and you make assumptions because you've got this worldview, this veil over your eyes. It allows you to understand the world based on everything you think you know and the assumptions you make. Now when Christ comes, Christ says you have this veil over your eyes. You see Jews a certain way. You see Palestinians a certain way. You see Gentiles a certain way. You see white people a certain way. You see black people a certain way. You have a veil over your eyes. So Jesus comes along and he says, I'm taking the veil away. For whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are black or white, whether you are Palestinian or not, I see you when you are in Christ and you will see each other as I see you. That's the reason why Christ came. To remove the veil from our eyes so that we can see clearly and stop making stupid assumptions about what you think you know or you don't know. Can any of us here blow breath into anybody and give anybody life? Not one of us. So what makes you think we have the right to be able to tell someone what we think they should or shouldn't do when we have a veil over our own eyes? Brothers and sisters, that's the problem with the church. Because we have a veil over us that we think gives us the right to tell people how they should live. Well, you can tell people how they should live. Just make sure you live in right. I'm just saying what I'm saying. So, so this worldview is either religious or it is scientific. Everybody has this. You either have a religious worldview or a scientific worldview. Here's the religious worldview. The religious worldview says there's power in prayer. The religious worldview will say that, you know what? Miracles do and still happen. That's the religious worldview. The scientific worldview says, what good is prayer? What is it doing? It's just words. The scientific worldview says, if I don't see the numbers and it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. So now you try to explain to someone, wait a second, there is power in the name of Jesus. Yes. And someone with a scientific worldview would say, no, there is power in penicillin. Do you see my point? 
There is power in medicine. There is no power in prayer. And you've got these two opposing worldviews. And all of us, we are somewhere in the middle. For even the Christians sometimes wonder if there is power in prayer. Sometimes we wonder, my brothers and my sisters, I'm laying before you the problem. The problem is we all lean to our own understanding. There are things that God has done and that God will do that only he understands. Because Paul tells us it is a mystery. How can the death of one person on a cross bring salvation to millions and billions of people? I don't know. How can me kneeling down and praying that someone gets healing and they get healed? I don't know. I don't know how it works. But here's what I can tell you. Here's what I can tell you as I testify. I've seen some things. Things have happened in my life that I can't explain. There are places I've gone that I shouldn't have gone. God has brought me from a mighty long way. I should have been dead a long time ago. But somehow, he made the crooked straight. Somehow, he brought an oasis in my desert. Sometimes he changes the heart of the children that I've been praying for. Sometimes I hear a word that is right on time. I didn't know what I don't know. But I've had some good days. And I've had some bad days. But through it all, he brought me through. So, so when we hear people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Okay. And aren't all religions basically the same? What's so special about Christianity? Or, or is there really only one way to God? What about those who have never heard the gospel? How can you believe in God when there is so much suffering in the world? These are all good questions that the church has not done a really good job of helping people to recognize. So. I want to talk about five quick ways, and then we'll close, of how we as a church fail people. Five quick ways. Number one, we fail people through religious confusion. Yeah, confusion. Today we have no clear answer for the multiplicity of beliefs and cults that call themselves Christians. What you may or may not know is that even the KKK calls themselves Christians. Mormons, all of these people call themselves Christians, and we have done a poor job. Even Jehovah Witnesses may call themselves Christians. All of these people. And why is it that all of these people call themselves Christians, but yet still we can't really agree on anything? See, but here's what Jesus says. With all these cults, someone comes to you and says, why is it that we have all of these different cults? What does Jesus have to say? Well, Matthew tells us. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The rock that Jesus is talking about is the mystery of the cross. So unless someone can tell you that the cross is a mystery, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the eternal God, unless they can say that, there's only one church. Anybody else 
is faking it to try to make it. So we as a church must be clear on who Jesus is and who we say he is. That's how we deal first with religious confusion. The second way that we fail as people of God is through religious abuse. This refers to abuse that's administered under the guise of religion, including harassment, humiliation, resulting in some kind of psychological trauma that people experience. I'm talking about clergy abuse. Sometimes we use this pulpit as a place to tell people what we really think of them. That's abuse. And it is wrong. I no more stand in judgment of any of you anymore than you stand in judgment of me. But there is only one judge, and he is the righteous judge. So I don't get to tell you how bad you are. I get to tell you how good you can be in Christ. That's my only job. Because hear this, when Jesus died, right, he, he, he let us know what? That he's given us what? The keys to the kingdom. Not the keys to hell. So I can't send anybody to hell. But I can certainly tell you how to get into the kingdom. See? There's a difference. So religious abuse is the second reason why we have problems of how people understand the church. I don't need to talk to you about even the Roman Catholic Church and the scandal around their abuse. But guess what? It ain't just them. It's us. We sometimes have done things that just because you didn't hear about it don't mean it ain't happening. I'm talking to the church. And we steal your money in many ways. Now, I'm not talking about me. Because I'm telling you, listen, Yvette can tell you that I'm definitely not stealing this church's money. But I still represent an organization that has abused its responsibility and its role in many ways. So we wonder why people are mistrusting of the church and its organization is because we have done a poor job by abusing the trust of people that are vulnerable around us. Amen. I'm just telling it like it is. God got me out here now. I don't know why, but that's where I am. The third way we fail as people of God is... And this is funny. Religious boredom. Religious boredom. If we're really honest, the church can be boring. While there are some, especially those that believe that the more solemn you are in the church is the more holy you are. And we can't have any expressions of faith and the Holy Spirit. That's fine. Everybody worships differently. And everybody worships in their own way. But for many of us, particularly the black church, we are an expressive people. Yes, sir. And so because we are an expressive people, when our emotions hit, and we understand that if you've been through what I've been through, then you would serve God the way that I do. If you understand where I've been. <laughs> but the truth is, truth is, the truth is, religious boredom can take the joy out of serving God. And we ought to be the happiest people in the world. Not that all of our problems are gone, but we ought to be the happiest people in the world. Why? Because we understand forgiveness of sins. 
we understand the hope of everlasting life. We understand that knowledge, that our prayers are heard by an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving God. Yes, and we understand that we have the privilege of knowing and not only being loved by God, but meeting him here every single Sunday. We meet God here. That's enough reason for us to celebrate, but we don't often exude that, for we opt instead to dampen our religion and water down our saltiness. And if you come to the church service to be entertained more than to meet God, then you too will be bored. The fourth way that we fail as the people of God is we cause, well, <laughs> religious absence. What do I mean by that? Well, where is God when tragedies strike? In light of events like, y'all remember the tsunami and the typhoon in the Philippines, as well as hurricanes Sandy and Katrina, the question often comes up from people we meet in the street, where is your God? But the question is more centered, not on where is God, but it's more or less in the midst of tragedies, in the midst of tragedies, where are you? Because we only want the church when something falls apart in our lives. Every other time, we're okay. But the minute something happens in our lives that we don't understand, the question is, where is God? Well, God is where he has always been. Where have you been? Well, let me tell you where God is in the midst of tragedies. He's been preparing the hearts of those that love him and preparing them for what will yet happen. That's where God is. Before the tragedy hits, you have been spending time with a God so that he prepares your hearts and your minds for the difficulties that are, must happen and that are inevitable in this world. That's where God is. He's going to comfort you in a time when you need comfort. But he's also going to be there in the times when the tragedies hit and you need to know that you are never alone, that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. You can't know that until you have spent time with God in preparation before the tragedy happens. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying, church. So we can all talk about where is God, but the question is, God is where he's always been, because as bad as things may be in your life, it's not as bad as it could be, but for the grace of God. Yes. And finally, the fifth way we fail as the people of God is we cause <laughs> religious excesses. I hope you all understand and are following what I'm talking about. There's an article titled Pride Goeth Before the Headlines back in the December 2010, 2011 issue of um, Ebony Magazine. The author, Eugene Robinson, wrote this in that article back then. The title of the article, you can look it up, Pride Goeth Before the Headlines, a call for a return to the humble man of the cloth. That was the title of the, 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 the article. And this is what he wrote, and I quote. Now I've edited it just to conceal the identity of the preacher he's talking about. But listen to the article. This is what it says. In 2005, the journal Constitution reported that a certain preacher had formed a charity 
that provided him with at least $1 million in salary over four years, a $1.4 million house, and the use of a Bentley that was worth about $350,000. This, according to the newspaper, was the preacher's response when he was called out on it. This is what the preacher said. We're not just a church. We're an international corporation. We're not just a bumbling bunch of preachers who can't talk and all we're doing is baptizing babies. I deal with the White House. I deal with Tony Blair. I deal with presidents around this world. I pastor a multi-million dollar congregation. You've got to put me on a different scale than that little black preacher sitting over there who's supposed to be just getting by because the people are suffering. That's from a preacher. And we wonder why people have a problem with the church. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I happen to be that little black preacher sitting over there trying to get by just because people are suffering. People are suffering. I am clear on my mission. You can't pay me because the moment you think you can pay me, I would have lost my reward. For my reward comes from a God who created the heavens and the earth. A God who named every single star. So while you may think that we're just getting by baptizing babies and people who are suffering, that's what we do. This was a major issue that we saw in the church back then and is still happening today. We as a church, we appear prideful, we appear boastful, materialistic, arrogant, and immoral. As a matter of fact, when we take a look at some of the factions in the church today and then take a look at the world, we can't even tell the difference. And we choose to bring these same slack practices into, out of the world into the house of God. Folks, the world is dying. The world is dying. People are not only helpless, but they are devoid of any hope as well. And they see church leaders, particularly those in media, presenting ourselves and presenting God in a way that God was never intended to be portrayed. He was <laughs> he was born in a manger among pigs and goats. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was ridiculed and he was told that he was a liar. His face was spat upon. He was whipped and he was abused and he hung on the cross and was crucified and died a criminal's death falsely. And we believe he should have been coming into Jerusalem on a Bentley. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that pastors and preachers should live destitute lives. If God has blessed preachers, God bless you. God blesses everybody and favor ain't fair. And maybe one day he's going to bless me so good that I can be like, yeah, maybe one day. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, I will not bow down to your statue. I will not. 
For I believe my God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, according to his power that works in each and every one of our lives. And if you can't do better than giving me eternal life, then I'm yours. But until then, keep your Bentley and keep your stuff. So, as I get ready to close, <laughs> our job is to bring good news about what God has done in Christ so that people can lay hold of the treasure that we have in this earthen vessel. But our focus text, in our focus text, as I get ready to close, Epaphras came to the Apostle Paul and he told Paul about the Colossian church and what was going on and how things were. And so the excerpt that I read today, Paul was responding to the church. Are you with me? And here's how Paul responded, and here's how I want you all to think about Paul's response. Paul says this to the church. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, the pastors and the leaders, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Are you hearing the heart of Paul? That I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Wow. Paul's message to us and my message to all of you today during this Advent season is that one, we develop our own personal devotion, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. I think you can do that. Your own personal devotion where you are always living a way that you are thankful for the things that you have that you know was a blessing that you probably didn't do anything to earn or deserve. Because people will see you and this attitude, it's contagious. So devote yourselves to some kind of personal piety for yourself. Second, pray for the leadership of the church. That new opportunities may be open for us to do what? Boldly proclaim the mystery of Christ with clarity and with authority. Pray that I don't lose heart. But I'm still willing to preach the message of the gospel with passion. Can you do that? Can you pray one day in the midst of your devotion that opportunities for this church to be able to tell more people about how good God is? Can you do that? Third, and finally, watch your own personal conduct. How you carry yourself. Be prudent in your treatment of others while making the most of every opportunity with sound answers 
when responding to people who have questions about why you believe what you believe. Listen, if I were an unbeliever and I see you as a church person and you're doing more to talk about all of the mess in the church, there ain't no way that I'm going to want to join and be a part of that mess. That's why we greet somebody. That's why we tell them that we love them. That's why we put our arms around them because sometimes the hug you give to someone in this church might be the only time someone gave them a hug. I don't like you every day. (laughs) But I love you every day. Sometimes you do things that make me angry. Yes, you do. And sometimes I do things that make you angry. It's okay. You guess what? Here's a secret. Don't tell anybody I told you this. But that's what happens in families. I don't always have to be pleased with your what you do. But I'm always willing, if you are ready, if you are ready to learn. If you're not ready to learn, then that's on you. I can't do nothing for you. But this is a place where if you're truly repentant in your heart and you want to do better, you can. And there is room for you here for that. This is the mark of what I call a salty religion. It comes from a believer that is alert, that has an attitude of thanksgiving, having known what Jesus has done in their lives. A salty religion comes from a believer that prays for the leadership of the church. A salty religion comes from a believer that is prepared with a firm knowledge of the gospel and makes every every opportunity to tell people about the hope that you have. I can tell you why I love Jesus. I love Jesus because, simply because, he first loved me. He loved me when I was unlovable. He loved me even when I didn't care two hoots about him or his church. But he found me in the darkness of my soul one day. And he says, there is a better way. Because as dark as your closet may be, whatever the darkness is in your life, You crack that door just a little bit and let just a little bit of the light come in, it only takes a little light to dispel an entire room of darkness. I don't know how it works, but it works. If you give Jesus just a little bit, listen, he'll take your five loaves and your two fish and he will feed the multitudes in your soul. That's a salty religion. That's your witness. That's how the church will grow. Not with more people necessarily in the pews, but with people with a soul that is healthy and that's on its way to finding the healing it needs. That's it. And this kind of salty religion, if it's seasoned just right, will be scrumptious and delectable that people will be asking for more because they will not be making any assumptions about what you truly believe. And lastly, remember the woman at the well? Remember her? She ran away. Hey, come see a man that got some real, real jerk chicken. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you get my point. 
Because if what you are presenting is good, then people will come back to you for more. And you won't have to chase them down. That, my brothers and sisters, is a salty religion. And I hope that in this season of Advent, that you are expecting more from God. Amen? May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved. I believe God, his word is true. I believe God, what he said we will do. I believe God, he will always come through. I will choose to to be